Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come into your presence today and we give thanks to you for the great things you have done. Father, your son told us that there is no greater gift that can be given than that a man lay down his life for his friends. How much more so then is the abundance of your grace poured out to us in your son who gave his life for his enemy, who died to bring salvation to those who spurned his law. And so, Father, we marvel at the great things that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. That you have taught us these things. And, Father, that we can continue to grow in them and be strengthened in them by your grace. And so, Father, today, we come before you humbly, knowing, Lord, that our lives are not your, our own. They are yours. We come before you today knowing that we are in your hands. We come before you today knowing, Father, that we, by your great grace, have been made pilgrims and exiles in this world. Father, now bind our hearts to the truth of your word. Work within us as only you can. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I mentioned last week that I'm going to be stepping on toes this, this morning, as the old backwoods West Virginia preacher saying used to say, stepping on toes. I'm going to be dealing with something that is likely probably one of the most difficult things for us as sinful, fallen human beings to deal with. And that is the subject of submission. And today we're going to look at the pilgrim's submission. We all know what, particularly in our country, we all know what it is for someone to have diplomatic immunity. Someone who's not a citizen of this country, but is representing another country, is not bound by the laws of this country in which they're currently living. And so, to some extent, for the majority of crimes that are sort of minor, they can get away with things. So if someone has diplomatic immunity and uh, someone comes by and gives them a parking ticket, they don't have to pay the parking ticket. Uh, if they're speeding and pulled over by a police officer, most likely they're not going to get a ticket at that point. They're, they are exempt to a certain degree from the laws of the land in which they live, but do not belong. So the question is, as Peter has been describing for us, that we are strangers, we are foreigners, we are exiles in this world, do we get spiritual diplomatic immunity? Are we able to live our lives in such a way where we do not have to obey and abide by the authorities that have been placed over us? Now, we hate Submission. We hate it. Um, you say the word and immediately there are going to be reactions. Partially some of those reactions are because submission has been misrepresented in the media that we have today. And unfortunately by some Christians they have misrepresented what it means to truly be submissive. Particularly as it regards husbands and wives. But nonetheless, the Bible is abundantly clear. We as Christians are called to be a submissive people. So today's message is going to be controversial. But my question for you today as we examine what God's Word says, as controversy wells up in your hearts, as I say things that may make you think, I don't agree with Him, make sure that your disagreement is with me and I'm misrepresenting God's word, or make sure that if you are disagreeing with God's word, what should you do? Submit to the word of God. So look with me here today as Peter shows us in these, 
in verses 13 through 20, is what we're going to look at this morning, how as a pilgrim, you and me must walk peacefully and submissively in this world. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So, I don't know that much more needs to be said than what Peter has said. He's very clear here in his commands to us. Be subject to every human institution. But of course, I'm a preacher, and so I have a lot to say. But we're going to be guided by God's word this morning. So I want us to see, we're going to be looking at four things about this, three of them this week, and then next week we're going to finish up by looking at the example of submission that Peter points us to in verses 21 through 23. So let's see, first of all, the command of submission, the command of submission. And we see, first of all, Peter giving a call to believers. There's a call to submission. Now, remember, this is being built upon what Peter has already commanded us to do in verse 12. So if we just look up just one verse, Peter is telling his, his readers to keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's a call for believers to stand out in the world, to stand out among those who do not know the Lord, and live in such a way that they are honorable. So how do we do that? How do we practically live honorable lives before the world? Now I think in many of us, our minds would immediately run to, well, we're just not going to engage in the sinful activities that they engage in. We're not going to be involved in drunkenness. We're not going to be involved in in sexual promiscuity. We're not going to be cheaters. We're not going to be liars. We're going to be upright people by the grace of God working within us. I think that's where we immediately go when we think about honorable conduct. But that's not where Peter first goes. Instead, he calls his readers to live as subject or to subject themselves to live submissively to every human institution. This is a command of God's word. It's not an option. Peter doesn't mince his words here. He doesn't say, well, only if X, Y, or Z. Now, we're going to get to how we deal with what, how we act when authorities conflict with each other. We're going to talk about that um, a little bit later. But I, I just find it interesting that I think immediately when we read these words, we want to go to the exceptions. We want to talk about, well, what about this or what about that? If you notice in this passage, Peter doesn't do any of that. He just lays out, be subject to the authorities. He doesn't go into these these exceptions that our minds very quickly go to. He's clear, be subject to every human institution. He is commanding a prevailing attitude that we as pilgrims should have towards the authorities we have over us. Now, even though we do not belong to this world, which is Peter's whole point in the whole book of 1 Peter, he begins by addressing this letter to strangers and to exiles. So we don't belong here. And in one very real sense, 
the authorities and the rulers of this present world, they have no claim over us. We are the Lord's. They have no claim over us, yet we are commanded here to live submissively to to them. We are, by God's sovereign and providential hand, in this world. And so according to our submission to the Lord, which we're going to see in just a moment, we should live submissive lives. Now, Peter's going to give us a great example at the very end of this section, pointing us to Jesus Christ. But I think it's important to just note how deeply Jesus obeyed this very command. We look in Luke chapter 2, verse 51. This is, Jesus has been born, they, 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 they've gone to the, uh, the synagogue, Jesus has been questioning or been talking with the, 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 uh, the leaders there, the rabbis in the synagogue, they're all marveling at his teaching. His parents leave, they forget Jesus behind, and then, oh, you know, and if you, so, you know, parents, if you've ever left your kid at a rest station or anything like that, Jesus' own parents did the same thing, all right? So they come back, they find him, and then notice what happens here in Luke 2, 51. He goes down with them, he comes to Nazareth, and he was what? Submissive to them. Now, were Joseph or Mary perfect? No, did they make mistakes? Well, there have been times where they would have possibly, as parents, failed to properly direct Jesus, who is the Son of God and has all knowledge, perfect knowledge. All right? So, you know, you can imagine, you know, Joseph's there in the carpenter shop and he's showing Jesus how to carve some wood. And, and Jesus is like, well, that's not the way I would do it. And, of course, Jesus would be right. But yet, nonetheless, he submitted himself to his parents. And, of course, Mary treasured all these things in her heart. This is the default position that we as Christians are to have in this world. A position of submission to our authorities. This is a command. It's not an option. Now what should be our motivation for living submissive lives in this world? And there is a motivation that Peter gives us here. Be subject for whose sake? For the Lord's sake, to every human institution. This is the reason why he gives us such a broad command to submission. Because we are not only strangers and exiles, we're not only pilgrims, but we are also ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. Him being the head, but we are the ones who God uses to work his kingdom in the world today. How do we to conduct ourselves? We do it for the Lord's sake. We don't do it primarily, and I think this is where we often get off. We don't get off track. We don't do it primarily to stay out of jail. Right? Now, jail is a good deterrent, right? Nobody wants to be in jail here this morning, I hope. It's a good deterrent, but that should not be your primary reason for living a submissive life. You don't do it because you don't want to end up having to pay fines or fees or, or have the IRS calling you and auditing you. That's not your primary reason. You also don't live a submissive life to, to the laws and the rules and the rulers in this world because, well, you just want to have an easier life on earth. In fact, Peter's going to point out that this command is given to believers when the world is making their life intentionally harder. Rather, the call here is to live submissively for the Lord's sake. Now, there's a couple things that we can point out to you. First of all, there's likely a warning that Peter is giving to his readers, particularly in the first century, that they not get caught up in what was known in, that, in the first century as the emperor cult. So Caesar, the emperor, viewed himself as a living God. And there was a populist movement among Roman citizens that elevated Caesar to divine status. And so there would be tremendous social pressure on Christians to fit in 
so that they could just sort of be like everybody else. Tremendous pressure. Pressure that was so great that at times you could not conduct business in town unless you first paid homage to Caesar as a divine god. It was the ultimate cult of personality. Now, Peter's reminding his readers that he's going to say, be subject to every human institution, and then he gives two examples. And what's the first example? To the emperor as supreme. So he, he puts this phrase, for the Lord's sake, to remind them, don't get caught up in the cult of personality. Don't follow this person because of this person. Follow or, or obey this person. Submit to this person for the Lord's sake. Live your life to glorify God above all things. We are to follow Christ Jesus above all. That means that there is no civic authority, no political figure that should have our ultimate allegiance. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And we must never forget that. The sad thing is, particularly in American politics, it's so easy to get caught up in the cult of personality. We maybe won't worship leaders today in the way as a god as they did in roman times but sometimes it gets awfully close and so we need to recognize that no human political leader should occupy the place that jesus christ should hold in our lives it was also a reminder of the ultimate authority of the universe who is the ultimate authority of the universe? Jesus Christ. And so as we live our lives for his sake, we are ultimately living submissively to the authorities placed over us because we're doing it in obedience to the true authority over all authorities, our Savior. And this is going to become important when we discuss, well, what do we do when authorities conflict? Where is our first allegiance to Jesus Christ? And then it finally reminds us of the purpose for which all Christians live. Why are we to be submissive to the authorities placed over us, the governmental figures? And Peter's going to press even further with this, and he's going to talk about our work relationships. And although we don't have indentured servitude like what was going on in the first century, many of the principles of the master-servant um, relationship relate to how we're to submit to and, and relate with our employers. But again, he's reminding us that we live not for our own fame, but for the fame of our Savior. And we shouldn't be motivated to live lives that are submissive to the authorities placed over us because we want to be considered fine, upstanding citizens. We do this because we want to be known for giving glory to our God. And so this simple phrase, for the Lord's sake, is going to become a, a compass, a true north for us as we navigate the submission that we're to have to the authorities that are placed over us. So, and again, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. What are we... For Christ, we're ambassadors. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we've seen the call to submission, the motivation of submission. And then thirdly, as we look at this command, we see the extent of submission. To whom are we to submit? And Peter words things in such a way as to make this command have the broadest possible application. He says, every human institution. That's what the English Standard Version um, translates this phrase here. Other translations go with the idea of every authority ordained by man. And the term 
that the ESV translates institution, it could refer to any creature. So Peter is specifically using very broad language. The extent of this command is broad. Now we tend to think of this primarily as a command to how we're to relate to civil authorities, governmental authorities. But Peter is expanding this reach. He, of course, deals with government authorities, but then he's going to expand it to how, how workers are to relate to those who are over them at, at work. And then he's going to apply this in chapter 3 to how wives are to live their lives before their husbands. We're not dealing with that yet, so we can step on those toes in a couple weeks. So, again, Peter's being very broad. He's extending this passage so that essentially any authority placed in the pilgrim's life, our default attitude is submit. If someone has authority over you, you are to approach it with the idea that you are to submit to them. That is the attitude of pilgrims, obedient submission. And this extends to how children are to submit to their parents, how members are to Submit to church leaders, how authority structures and business are to submit to each other, how you're to submit to your superiors in the military, in educational institutions, in volunteer activities. I mean, it is broad. If there is an authority, what is your first response? You should. Oh boy, that was really weak. You should. All right. I know we're going to get excited about submitting. Everyone here is going to be jumping up and down about submission after we're done here. Now, we notice here in verse 14, notice who, or verse, at the end of verse 13 and verse 14, Peter specifically singles out, first of all, the emperor as supreme or as governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, for those living under Roman rule, this meant that the authority of Caesar was the ultimate civil authority in that day and age. In the hierarchy of their civil government, that's who they were to um, submit to. But Caesar then provided that same authority to local governors. Speaks of governors as sent, to, as sent by him. And the by him is referring back to the emperor. And that was the, the structure of the Roman government. Caesar was the head. He was the, the, the big guy. And then he would commission other people to go and to govern the different areas of the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was humongous, was huge. And so he had these governors that were sent by him. The governors are really the ones who the Christians would find themselves interacting with the most. They would be the ones that they would deal with in their local town. You know, if you notice the story of of Christ's crucifixion, that is a, a local event. And, and who, is, who is involved in that? The local governor, Pilate. So they would be dealing with tax collectors. They would be dealing with uh, local governors and local proconsuls who were administering the Roman government to them. And their default response to these other governors was to what? Come on, people. It was to submit. All right. You're getting involved. That's good. Now, how does, that, how does that apply to us today? Well, our media likes to put a lot of uh, laser focus on the federal government. And we look at particularly the executive branch, the president, and we look at the two houses of Congress, the, the House and the Senate, the two chambers, excuse me, the two chambers of Congress, the House and the Senate. And so there's a lot of focus on that from a national level. And certainly, federal law affects our everyday lives. I'm not saying that. But the reality is, you know, who sends you your tax bill? It's your local municipal government. It's the state of Pennsylvania. Who enforces whether or not your dog has a license on it? And the Allegheny County treasurer, which I've never understood why the treasurer, that's in his purview, but whatever. So what does this mean then when we come up against local regulations? Zoning enforcement. OSHA regulations. 
EPA requirements. Now, I've talked to people who work in all sorts of these industries that have to deal with the regulation of OSHA and the regulations of the EPA and, and local zoning boards and, 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 uh, and guys that have to, building inspectors that have to sign off on stuff. And, and it can drive you bonkers, can it? But what is our responsibility as strangers and exiles in this world? Are we above them and able to just flaunt what they say? No, we're to what? There we go. Who would have ever thought that talking about OSHA and EPA submission in a Baptist church, people would be saying strongly, submit. But yet, is that not what Peter's calling us to? Submit to every human institution. Now, there, there's, you know, as, we, as you talk with people in your industry, wherever you work, you know that they are taking shortcuts, that they're maybe paying bribes to get past certain things. Should that be the approach of the Christian? Does that make our lives in the world harder? But again, for whose sake are we doing this? For the Lord's sake. I think of what Jesus tells us in John chapter 18 regarding our attitude in this. The kingdom that we exist in is a kingdom that is not of this world. I think this is so important for how we understand this. Because if Christ's kingdom was of this world, then what should we be doing? If it was of this world, fight! We, if the kingdom that we are a member of is of this world, then what Peter did in the garden would have been commendable. He would have, we should all be pulling out our swords and going after those who are coming after us. But what does Jesus do in that moment? Does he commend Peter or rebuke him? He rebukes him. And he heals the, the, the guy who had his ear cut off. I mean, do you, do you see the, it's, it's, it's so ironic. Jesus is showing his authority over creation by healing this guy. And yet then Jesus goes and submits himself to sinful rulers. What an example for us in how we're to live our lives. So our call is to be understanding that our kingdom is not of this world. And this is a hopeful thing because... There's not going to be any OSHA regulators or EPA regulators in heaven. Amen? (laughs) We won't have to deal with those things. We won't have to deal with the things that they're trying to mitigate because we'll be in perfection. There'll be no sin anymore. And in fact, the failures of regulatory agencies to truly truly enact or to, to create any positive change, is an indication that we need a Savior that is not like us. But yet our call is to submit. So we've seen the call of submission. Secondly, the purpose of submission. Notice what he says in verse 15. Right, Broad command, submit to every human institution. Verse 15, this is the will of God. God. The first thing we see is that submission to men is truly submission to God. And this takes us right back to that phrase, for the Lord's sake. The first reason for submission to earthly authorities is found in our allegiance to God. Now, sometimes when we talk about the Lord's will, we think about it like it's this mysterious thing, this nebulous idea that we can never truly understand that we can never truly grasp. What about in this passage? Is it nebulous for us what God's will is for us according how we're to approach our authorities? Is it, is it difficult? No. What are you to do? Uh, we'll, we'll let that one slide. That one wasn't very good. We're to submit. Because submission to men is submission to God. It is the will of God. Scripture could not be clearer. So why do we struggle with it? Well, we don't want to obey, right? We don't want to submit. 
We want our way to be the way that's done. We think we know how things would be best. And that especially concerns how we look at other human authorities because they're just fallen. In fact, they're un, many of them are unregenerate fallen human beings. So why should I submit to them? And Peter's answer is because it's God's will for your life. This is God's, this is the will of God. Secondly, submission to men displays good works. Again, this is tying in with what he said in verse 12, keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. What is one of the first good deeds that is evidenced by God's grace in believers? Submission to authority. In fact, we see here, in verse 16, how we do this. How we're able to display these good works. Because we live as people who are what? Free. Now, that's so significant. Now, we're not talking about freedom in the sense of America freedom. Where we see the, 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 the flag wafting in the wind, and we hear in the distance the screech of an eagle, all right? That's not the freedom we're talking about. I'm thankful for the freedom we have in this country. God has blessed us, and men have laid their lives down to ensure that we have the freedoms here, and all of this is by the sovereign good hand of God. We must praise God for the freedoms we have in America. But the freedom that Peter is talking about is a freedom that is even greater than the freedom we have as citizens of America. It is the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. That means that this world, we're free of it. Because we're strangers and pilgrims. Because we're foreigners. We're not tied to the things of this world. Now we tend to think of that materialistically. And that's true. All right? If your car explodes going down the highway and you're okay... It's okay. It's just a thing. Yes, it will make some difficulties for you. Yes, I'm sure there will be times of mourning for that. But frankly, you're, above, you're free from your car. You're free from your house. You're free from your bank account. Because when this world lives, ends, will any of that be left? But will you if you're in Jesus Christ? Yes. So we're free. We're pilgrims. We don't belong here. And so that attitude of freedom is key in helping us be able to submit to these rulers. Because here's what happens. When the rulers come after things of this world, that's when we want to fight. And what does that show? That shows us that we're not truly free. That we've tied ourselves to freedoms in America. We've tied ourselves to certain realities in American society that we love and hold dearly. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work to keep the freedoms that we have using legal processes given to us. I'm going to mention that in a second. But frankly, you realize that there are people all across this world who don't have the freedoms we have, and yet they are free in Jesus Christ. See, this is what we have a tendency to do. And notice what Peter puts his finger on. We live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for what? Evil. See, that's the tendency that the church, the first century church had, and the church today has. We, we We want to not submit to these laws because, well, we can sort of, jump around or mangle things in such a way so that we can say, well, I'm not submitting to this law because it is against my religious convictions. And then use it as a cover for living sinful lives. Live as people who are free, but not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's why he says in verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, 
You should put to silence the ignorance. Oh, sorry about that. Notice what Jesus does. If the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Are you free today? Jesus promises that if you are free in Him, you are free indeed. Are you free? The call for freedom is simple. Repent and turn to Christ. And live in a kingdom that's not tied to this rotten, corrupted world. If Christ sets you free, you will be free indeed. Then thirdly, we see that as we submit to men, it silences their ignorant foolishness. Notice what, again, back to verse 12, because there's, there's such a connection between verse 12 and the rest of these verses. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a question of if. It is a when. The world will speak against you as evildoers. Right? Jesus promised this. Right? If they persecuted Christ, guess what they're going to do to his followers? Persecute them. They're, the world is going to treat believers with contempt and evil. That's, we should be expecting that, right? That's the world in which we live. So what Peter is saying is, live submissively to the people who are treating you unfairly. Wait, why? Because you'll put to silence their ignorance and their foolishness says we will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, it is one thing if you hold strongly to a belief, but then you fight against the authority that's coming after you for that belief. That, to them, proves their case. It shows them these Christians are dangerous. Look at what they're trying to do. But if we live lives that are submissive to our leaders, those in authority over us, then they don't have a leg to stand on when they call us evil. Oh, they'll do all sorts of philosophical and rhetorical gymnastics. They will, they will certainly call evil good and good evil. They'll flip that upside down. But let us not be known as rebels to the authorities in this world. Because as we live submissive lives, then it silences their words. It silences their ignorance. That means we are not to be engaging in rebellion or sedition. The world and the authorities placed in the world need to see our good works, living as servants. And then here's what's important again, and that emphasis on why we're doing this. Look at the end of verse 16. We live as servants of who? Of God. We are not servants of the government. We are servants of God. And so what do servants of God do? They submit. What do servants of God do? Submit. This is how we show our good works. So that they would, as he says at the end of verse 12, see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Not to rehash what we looked at last week, but everyone will glorify God. They will either bow the knee in this life, making Christ their Lord by faith, or they will bow the knee when he stands in glory before them as Lord of the universe. And so when we live lives that are treated unfairly, and yet we still submit to the authorities over us, the world looks on and they think there's something different about them. They seem to live as though this world doesn't matter to them. They seem to be, what? Free. And so we can show our good works in that way. So we've seen the call to submission, the purpose of submission, and now we see the practice of submission. The practice of submission. The first thing 
submit with the proper attitude. In the entire scripture, there is always one thread of the commands that God gives. He does not desire external conformity. He desires internal transformation. Can you submit to the authorities given over you, but yet underneath your breath not have the right attitude? Absolutely. And so Peter first goes at our attitudes rather than our actions. And we see this in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The first idea here is to honor. This has the idea of valuing everyone or treating them as they, re- as not treating them just what they deserve, but having a high regard for them. That's the idea of honor. There's two, two focuses, or foci, I guess, is, the, is the, the, the plural of focus. There's two things that Peter focuses on. First of all, everyone. How are we to treat everyone? Honor. We're to honor everyone. Christians ought not to be people who run down, cast dispersions on, or consider anyone inferior. And this is so important. There's no place for this, no matter who somebody may be, based on their background, their racial identity, or their ethnicity. And there also should not be any dispersion among Christians for this, regarding the particular sin that a person chooses to be identified with. We are to honor everyone. That includes the most well-respected person in our society and the one that is considered the dregs of society. They're all made in God's image. They all are deserving of honor. Peter is clear about this. Honor everyone. Now, we don't let our esteem of everyone let us look permissively on sin we don't change what the bible says about sin but neither do we let that person's particular sinful choice demean the humanity and the image-bearing value that they possess and that is my fear is what has happened in the church to those in the lgbtq community yes it's sin no one's changing christians should not be changing that But we're not to hate them, we're to love them. We're to honor them. And to show them the only hope in this world is found in Jesus Christ. So we honor everyone. But then, notice at the end of verse um, 17, he then says, honor the emperor. Now, why does he say it again? Because wouldn't the emperor be included with everyone? Why does he say it again? It's interesting that he reiterates it to public authorities represented by the emperor. And I think he's sort of highlighting something that I think is apparent in our society. It's easy to not honor public figures, isn't it? Very easy. It's very easy for us to do this. Now, this was, this was unthinkable to the first century church, all right? Honor the emperor. What was the emperor doing? Killing Christians. And Peter says, you want me to honor them? I mean, I think this sermon is stepping on toes today. Imagine what it was doing in the first century church. You want me to honor? The, you want me to show respect and value to the person who doesn't value us at all? Who is having us ripped apart by lions and tigers? Who is crucifying us and burning us? You want me to honor that person? And what does Peter say? Honor who? The emperor. It was not easy to honor the emperor in the first century. So, you know what? We've got it a lot easier than the first century church in our day and age. But yet, we're also commanded to honor our leaders. No matter who they are. Whether or not they're of our particular political party affiliation or not. So let's, let me just ask you the question. How did you honor Trump? How are you honoring President Biden? 
you know, it is very easy for us to run them down and to criticize them and to make fun of them and to demean them and to think of them at many times as less than human as we are fed by the media on both sides, right and left, driving us one way or the other. And what is, Pete, what is God's word saying to cut through all that? Honor the emperor. Honor those who are in authority over. I mean, am, am, I not, am, am I misreading the scriptures here? It's clear. But I, even in my own heart, I feel the tension. Because I just shake my head sometimes when political figures do the things they do. Honor them. Then he says, secondly, we are to love our spiritual family. Now, this is a gracious thing of God. Of course, we are, to call, we are called to love political figures in the sense that they are image bearers, but we don't have to love them like we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a difference here. Love your spiritual family. While we honor every, everyone, we love our brothers in Christ. And here's the difference. We are to show agape to them, sacrificial love to them, to give of ourselves for the betterment of our brothers in Christ. And then... The final thing that he points to is fear God. And this is vital. While we are to submit to our earthly authorities, we are never to fear them. There's only one person in the universe who believers are called to fear, and it is Jesus Christ. It is the Father. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the triune God. That is who we fear. We do not live submissive lives to please our governmental rulers, to be good citizens. We live submissive lives because we fear our Lord, for whom we will stand before and give an account for every careless word. Fear God. Again, submit to, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And that means then that we need to submit with the correct hierarchy. All right, so what, what Peter lays out here in this attitude does present for us a roadmap of how we are to start to deal with when authorities conflict. God is supreme. Submission to God above all. Submission to other believers out of love. Submission to earthly authorities. These attitudes provide a roadmap for us for how we practice submission in our lives. This is very helpful. It allows us to triage the circumstances and situations that we're in. So you've heard all this. You say, all right, pastor, I'm, I'm with you. All right, I, I agree we need to submit to these, these authorities. Well, Peter doesn't leave it there. He's not done stepping on toes. Because look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle. All right? Everyone loves a good boss, right? But also to the unjust. Who likes that on a Monday morning when you've got to go in and deal with a tyrant of a boss? Third thing we see in the practice of submission is we submit even to the unjust. Again, am, am I not reading this correctly? It's pretty clear. Now, he is speaking specifically of servants and masters. And in that context, there would be two types of interactions or relationships. There would be, and what the majority of most servants were in the first century, would be what we considered indentured servitude. Serving somebody to pay a debt, right? That was the, a very common practice in first century. But there was also what we call chattel slavery, where individuals were sold as property, and that was happening as well. And so the, the call here, which is difficult to hear, is we need to submit to the unjust. So today, how do we, how do we relate these words to us today? Well, employer employee relationship how are we to 
deal with those who are over us? And the answer is, as Christians, we are to submit. He speaks here of this in regards to everyday interaction. So here's the thing. One thing, it's very theoretical to talk about living in submission to President Biden because I don't think I'm going to meet President Biden anytime soon. Maybe you, maybe you are, I don't know. It's very easy to speak of it that way. But here he begins to come into our everyday lives because we're dealing with employers every day. We're dealing with these type of structures every day. And sometimes we're dealing with absolute terrors. When I came, when we moved up here to Pennsylvania and I had to deal, I got a, got a secular job, I dealt with one manager Oh, it was just, I would come home and I'd be like, I'm quitting. And Rita would remind me, we have bills. All right, I'm not quitting. Now, here's where this, where the rubber meets the road for this. Because (laughs) it's very easy to, around the water cooler, not honor them, isn't it? It's also very easy to say, you know what? They're saying that they're going to do it this way, but I'm going to do it my own way because my way is better. Need, Need I remind you of what Jesus did when he was with his parents? Did Jesus know how to do things better than Joseph and Mary? Absolutely, but what did he do? Submitted. This is our responsibility. It's to submit to our authorities. Now, how do we do this? Well, he, he talks about that. Verse 19, he says, This is a gracious thing when, and here's the first key, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Dependence on the grace of God is important. All right? It is a gracious thing he speaks of. What is your natural reaction when you're treated unfairly? Yeah, get them back. Fight. Take out the sword. That's our natural reaction. So how are our sinful natural reactions overcome? But by the grace of God. It's a gracious thing. When we suffer unjustly, it is a gracious thing. It is the grace of God at work in our hearts. And then we're to have a mindfulness of the fear of the Lord. When mindful of God. We're not... Christians are not sadists. We're not masochists. We're not in this because we suffer because that's the call of a Christian. We suffer because we're seeking to make Christ known in our suffering. And so Peter makes that important or makes that clear for us. And then finally, there is a desire to show and display God's transformative grace. Notice what he says in verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? All right, so your boss tells you, I need this report by 1 o'clock. All right, 1 o'clock comes, you don't send your boss the report. The boss comes and says, why didn't you send the report? Oh, I'm just having a rough day. Well, be prepared to get beaten, all right, not in a literal sense. All right, if your boss is beating you, thankfully we have freedoms in this country and you can find another employer. But, you know, don't be surprised if you get reamed out, if you get written up if something happens. You're not suffering for Christ's sake because you were stupid. And I feel like many Christians feel that way. Like, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're suffering because you're not doing what you've been called to do. You're not submitting as you ought to. But if you give them the report, and they they get the report, and, and they take that report, and then they pass it off as their own work, and they get the promotion you were looking for, that's not fair, is it? Suffer for the sake of Christ. You're displaying the transformative grace of God in you. Again, notice how he ends verse 20. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I know I am way over time. Can you bear with me for 10 more minutes? Because I think it's important that we talk about What do we do when authorities conflict? Because this is where we we live in a world where authorities are going to conflict. 
So I just want us to walk through some things that Peter provides for us and then look at some principles and then we'll be done. So I'll try to move through this quickly and you all know that that's a lie. Nothing's quick with me. So we'll, we'll try to get there. First thing, attitudes are important. All right? The, I, I, again, I can't emphasize verse 17 enough. That helps us in how we're to approach this conflict. I think it's also important to note that Peter does not lay out what to do when one authority calls you to do something that violates another authority. I mean, that was certainly happening in the first century church. So his emphasis here is not figure out how to deal with the conflicts. His emphasis here is to what? One more time. There we go. Submit. But those attitudes that he speaks of are a great guide map for us on how we're to live. Again, Christians are not revolutionaries. We're not rebels. That's not our default attitude. We are to be a people who seek submission, not sedition. We are a people who seek compliance, not conflict. And notice what Paul says in Romans 12, 14 through 18. What are we supposed to do to the people who are treating us unfairly, persecuting us? What are we supposed to do? Bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as depends on you. So everything he says wrapped up in this. Live what? Peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. Now that hierarchy that he gives us in verse 17 is going to help direct how we deal with conflicting authorities. We submit to God as our first priority in the fear of the Lord. Secondly, we love the church as our second priority. And then thirdly, we honor and submit to God-given authority as our third priority. So how do we handle conflict? All right? I don't have these up on the slides, but I, uh, so if you want to write these down, I, I think they're helpful. I'm hoping they're helpful for you. The first thing in the first question, when, a, when an authority tells us something that conflicts with another authority, obey God rather than man. All right? The Bible is abundantly clear on this. All right? Acts chapter 5. You know, the gospel, Pentecost has happened. The church is growing. Peter's going into the synagogue. He's preaching about Jesus. The rulers in the synagogue, they say, stop it. The next day, what does Peter do? Preaches Christ. And so the rulers in the synagogue, we can't have this. And so they grab them and they take hold of them. And it says, when they had brought them and they set them before the council, the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to preach in his name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And then Peter goes on and he says, we are to obey God rather than man. So what does this mean from a practical standpoint? If any authority commands you to do that which God forbids or commands you to not do what God has commanded, you ought to obey God rather than man. So there are times where we are not to submit to our authorities when they command us to sin or they forbid us from doing that which God has commanded. And we are right to do that because our citizenship is not in this world, it is in heaven. So that is the first thing we're called to do. The second thing that we're called to do is to flee to preserve life. When your life or the life of your loved ones is in danger, submission is not a call to careless loss of life. So let's say that the government came in and they said, we're rounding up all the Christians and killing them. Hard to think of that in America, but it's happening in countries around this world. And guess what those people do? Do they submit to the government? They come to the door, we're going to rush you? No, what do they do? They flee. They run to save their lives. This is the pattern that we find in Scripture. David fled from fall, Saul. Jesus fled from the mob. 
Paul fled from imminent threats upon him. The early church, the gospel was actually spread because the early church was fleeing from Jerusalem out. So just a quick note, God can use persecution to accomplish his purposes. In fact, he always uses everything to accomplish his purposes. So we have the right to flee to preserve life. Thirdly, use legal processes granted to you. All right? Paul is taken captive. He's beaten up illegally. He's treated very unfairly. I mean, Paul talks about how he was almost dead from stonings and different things. And so he, he's brought up before the Roman Roman rulers, and, and he comes up, he says, this is not a lawful thing you've done since I am a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. And all of a sudden, everything changed. And Paul actually used this as an opportunity to share the gospel. He went to Rome. He spent, he spent years chained up, sharing the gospel, people coming to visit him. He used the legal process is granted to, uh, to him. However, and this is important to keep in mind, we can make our appeals. We can use the court systems that we have in America. However, we also need to submit to their decisions. And that's the thing that I find interesting about Paul's life. Because Paul, were, were his decisions from the legal standpoint always fair? No. I mean, church history tells us Caesar did not side with Paul. Church history tells us he lost his head. Was that fair? I mean, he was just preaching about Christ. But we don't hear about a Christian revolt. We don't hear about Christians trying to, to overthrow the Roman government to save Paul from you know, whatever prison he was in. Paul submitted himself to that. Which brings us to the third thing. We're to submit to God's sovereign purposes for our lives. Paul ties the rule of human authorities to the providence of God. Notice what he says in Romans 13, 1 through 2. Very similar to what Peter says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? There's no authority except from who? From God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authorities, who are you resisting? God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Submit to God's sovereign purposes for your life. Two Old Testament examples I want to share with you very briefly. The first is in Daniel. We all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to this idol. And as I was studying this, I was talking with Robert about this. If any of you watched Veggie Tales and the story about this, it's a big golden bunny, all right? And there's a great song, the bunny, the bunny, oh, I love the bunny. All right, anyways. So what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? Did they bow down? They disobeyed their authority because they, they were telling them to do something that God expressly forbid. And so Nebuchadnezzar grabs them up. They're arrested. Bring, they're brought before the king. The king says, I'm going to give you one more chance. The bunny's going to come up here. Well, the bunny. The idol's going to come up here. All right? Bow down and you'll save your lives. Otherwise, you're being cast into the fiery furnace. And notice the response of these faithful, God-fearing, fully confident in God. These young men. Young men they were. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we're not going to bow down. So just go ahead and throw us in, essentially. It says, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. So we know that you can throw us in there, and it's possible that nothing will happen to us. He is able. Our God is able. And we know that he will deliver us out of your hand. This is their freedom. They were slaves in Babylon, but yet they knew that they were free in Jesus Christ. And then he says, 
But if not, in other words, if he chooses not to deliver us, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship your golden images that you've set up. See, the, the reality of what they had here is they said, if we go into the furnace, God is able to save us. And if we go into the furnace, God may not save us. But that's okay because you have no true claim on us. And we know the story. They were thrown into the furnace and there was a, thir- a, f- a fourth person there, one like the Son of God. And they came out unscathed. But was there, did they fight the guards that were holding them? Did they try to get away? Did they resist? No. They submitted, fully trusting in God. And the second example is from David's life. As you know, David was anointed to be king. And Saul didn't like that because Saul was still king. And even though Saul had a complicated relationship with David, Saul's daughter was his wife, yet Saul was constantly seeking to kill David. Now, to me, this is astonishing. We can learn so much from David here. Because he has been anointed king. All right? Samuel said, "You're you're king. And so there's this scene where David or Saul is chasing David in the caves and and Saul has to go to the bathroom. And he goes to the bathroom and and he goes into a cave that David just happens to be sitting in. He doesn't see David in the darkness and David literally catches Saul with his pants down. And his his mighty men are like, "The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Certainly you should kill him." Raise up your hand and take vengeance on the one who's been trying to kill you all these years. And what does David do? Cuts off a little bit of his robe that Saul doesn't even notice. Saul goes out of the cave. David comes out and says, Saul, and holds up the robe. We see here, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? You know, I think it's interesting here. The world is going to say that we're trying to do all sorts of seditious things and it ought not to be true and we should prove it to not be true in our lives. This is what David's pointing out. Why do you listen to them and say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, and here's the key, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And so he goes on, May the Lord judge between me and you. May who avenge you? The Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. It's like David was inspired by the same spirit that inspired Paul. Beloved, when when is it appropriate for us to avenge ourselves? Never. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then here's a great principle for us to consider as we deal with these conflicting authorities. Do not be overcome by evil. Boy, we live in an evil world, and it is easy to be overcome by that evil. Don't be overcome by the evil. Overcome evil with what? With good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the clarity at which it gives. Father, may we take these truths and think upon them, truly consider them today. May your spirit convict us of the areas in which we're not obeying what you've written here. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood.